We are ready to begin another week of our four-and-a-half-year verse-by-verse journey through all of God's inspired Word by opening that scripture up to Titus chapter number 2. Titus is written by the Apostle Paul after his release from Roman detention at the city of Rome. I believe that he's making a tour of the Aegean area hitting places like Ephesus and Colossae and Philippi, just like he promised in the letters he wrote while he was awaiting his imperial review. But on his way to those places, he dropped Titus off at the island of Crete with instructions to strengthen the congregations there to appoint spiritual leaders that meet a certain criteria to make sure that he is preaching and teaching as an apostolic delegate in a way that is appropriate. And more recently, as we were just seeing uh, in our last session, uh, how the older men should meet a certain standard in the way they live their lives, the older ladies should be in a certain way, the younger men, the younger ladies, all of them should be living godly lives as directed by the spiritual leadership. So in Titus chapter 2, let's look at verse verses 7 and 8 before we push into the newer section that we haven't looked at before. This is where Paul tells Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. So, Preachers, the pastor teachers, they need to set an example. They need to practice what they preach, or I think more appropriately, they need to preach what they practice. So show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So the preacher-teacher's life should be, just like all the other spiritual leaders' lives, balanced and stable and godly, so that people can't make legitimate accusations against the men of God who are in these positions of responsible teaching. Verse number nine, Paul now goes back to a group that is pretty large in the first century, but which has no exact parallel in our more modern time. Uh, And one of the things I always caution about is when you hear the word slave and hear the word master out of the New Testament, don't, as an American, think slavery of the South pre-Civil War, because that is not the slavery we're talking about. That slavery was an abomination. It was kidnapping, which in the Old Testament was punishable by execution. Uh, It is the dehumanizing of an ethnic group 
turning them into actually just farm animals, breeding them for their own purposes. And the scripture would never have condoned that type of slavery if that's what we were talking about here in the passage. So the slavery we're talking about here is typically economic slavery, means you as an individual get yourself in over your head financially, you owe money, so you pay it back with your service. Might be family situation, maybe your parents owed the money, and so you ended up getting sucked in to long-term slavery. Or it may be community. Your whole community may have been paying the price. Or it might have been your whole nation. Uh, wars often uh, ended with entire cities uh, and regions being enslaved as part of the war reparations uh, to the winner of the uh, contest between two groups. Uh, so whatever the reason was, there was a huge number of slaves in the first century, and many, many Christians were slaves. And so Paul writes, as he's already done when he was writing uh, the letter of Ephesians, when he was writing the letter of Colossians, he says, if you are in this category as a Christian, this is how you should act. So verse number nine, slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. Submission is a matter of finding your place in the structure. And so in the structure of slavery, the slave owes their obedience to their master. They do what they're told. Now, I've mentioned this before. There's one exception to that. Uh, and it's true for any type of structural uh, submission, as Scripture describes. If... If a lower-level leader tells you to do something that an upper-level leader has not agreed with, that is, it's in contradiction, then you must obey the higher authority. And so if a master were to tell you to do something that was immoral, you would have to say, I'm sorry, sir, I cannot do that. It would be immoral. And then you'd have to deal with whatever consequences come uh, out of that thing. And uh, the closest parallel, of course, is being an employee uh, and an em having an employer. And I actually have seen examples of this where um, an employer instructs an employee to do something that is, is either I'm immoral or sometimes even illegal. And the employee has the responsibility to say no in those circumstances. Uh, that's definitely the way it is in the military. Uh, in the military, if you feel that you're being given an illegal order, uh, you can ask for it to be put in writing and then refuse it. Uh, because that way, there's a, I think there's a paper trail that shows what the problem is, uh, that the, uh, the IG, the uh, Inspector General, can take care of, or uh, the, uh, uh, the Uniform Code of Military Justice can take care of. All right, so slaves be submissive to their own masters in everything, unless, of course, it violates what God has said. 
they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. So they're supposed to be trying to get along, uh, polite to their master, uh, polite in carrying out the business of whatever it is the master has given them to do. Verse 10, not pilfering. Uh, that should be pretty explanatory, the idea that you shouldn't be stealing stuff from your master. Uh, if you're working someplace, you shouldn't be embezzling from your master. You shouldn't be taking things out of the supply closet that you've not been authorized to take. Uh, but showing all good faith. Uh, this is another example here of the word faith being used in the sense of trustworthiness. Uh, the master should have faith in the slave so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of of God our Savior. Now that has to do with the faith. Uh, everything that we do or say, we do it all to the glory of God the Father, uh, to the honor of Jesus the Son. And so slaves should reflect Jesus to their masters. Verse number 11, following along that idea, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, there's a play, of course, on Jesus' name. Uh, Jesus' name in Hebrew means he who is salvation. And that he who is part is the divine name of God, Yahweh, or Yah as its smaller component. Uh, so God's grace, God's unmerited favor, has shown up on planet Earth at this particular time, the first century, uh, last part of first century BC, first part of first century AD, and it's bringing Jesus. And it's bringing Jesus to everyone. And then it does this for those who embrace Jesus. Verse 12, training us, because the us here would be believers, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Now, godliness, of course, is being like God. Ungodliness would be the opposite of that. And so when we embrace Jesus, then we are being taught by the power of the Holy Spirit uh, to say no to living in that that way that used to go against God's standards. Uh, and the worldly passions here, uh, a passion is a desire. And you've heard me talk about this idea that we all have these God-given natural desires to eat, to drink, to procreate, uh, to have um, a, an enjoyable experience in life. But when those passions go across lines of design into overeating, overdrinking, overengaging in sexual behavior, or misengaging in sexual behavior, and being lazy and self-centered, well, that's worldly passions. That's doing things the way of this sinful world. And so part of Christianity, part of the Christian lifestyle, is learning how to say no to those sorts of things. And instead, to do this, to live self-controlled. You remember that the whole fruit of the Spirit from the book of Galatians, uh, 
finishes with the idea of self-control. Starts with love, ends with self-control. We are to live self-controlled, upright, which means uh, appropriate, and godly, there's that idea of being like God, lives in the present age. So right now, that's what we should be doing. As we are waiting for his or our blessed hope, the appearing of the God, uh, excuse me, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, repeatedly, we understand in Scripture that the hope is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, when he came the first time, he redeemed us, he redeemed our souls from sin by his death and resurrection. But that didn't fix the body problem, did not fix the world's um, infection with chaos. When Jesus comes the next time, he will redeem our bodies as well, and he will redeem this creation. He will do away with the old creation, the old heaven and new earth, and bring into existence the new heaven and the new earth in which only righteousness dwells. And so we are looking forward to that. That's our hope. That's where we have our focus. That's what controls our attitudes here. Uh, And verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So Jesus, who is our great God, who is our Savior, who is the Christos, the Mashiach, the Messiah, the King, he's the one that laid down his life for us so that he could take it back up again. But he laid down his life so that he could redeem us. Now, redemption is all about getting something back into one's control, back into one's relationship. So he brought us out of all of this sinfulness, this lawlessness, this not having anything to do with God situation, and brought us into the right relationship with God. And in the process, he was also making for himself a special people. Now, this is a reference uh, to uh, uh, several passages in the Old Testament uh, where God talked about Israel was going to be his segula. Segula is a Hebrew word that means treasure, possession, prized possession. I like to tease people that whatever it is that you would run back into a burning house for, that's your segula, that's your prized possession, because you were willing to risk death in order to get that. Well, for Jesus, he came into this burning universe, into this burning creation, and grabbed us and brought us out because we were the most valuable thing for him. And so we should very much appreciate that and act like we are valuable to Jesus Christ in what we do 
with our new life, which is the next thing that he talked about here. Uh, The people who are zealous for good works. We have not been saved just to sit around and do nothing. We have been saved to do whatever our hands find to do for Jesus Christ. Whatever whatever you do in word or deed, do all to the glory of God uh, with thanksgiving as well. And so that is a a principle, that is a, a concept that you'll see in quite a few places in the New Testament. And Paul wraps it right up here as the responsibility for all Christians, including slaves who happen to be Christians. You need to appreciate what Jesus has done for you, look forward what he's going to do for you, and make sure that everything you do now is related to both those things. Now, verse 15, we're reminded again, he's talking to a preacher. He's talking to a pastor teacher named Titus on the island of Crete. Verse 15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. So stay on top of this and be insistent. That exhortation idea is like really insist that people follow these procedures, these ways of doing things, and rebuke. Rebuke those that don't want to do this because that's not appropriate, and let no one disregard you. Now, that sounds very similar uh, to what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12, don't let anyone look down on you because of your youth. Uh, Now, Timothy, when Paul just finished writing that, probably within days, weeks, maybe a couple of months before he wrote uh, the book of Titus. Uh, When Paul wrote to Timothy, uh, Timothy was probably in his mid-30s. I suspect that Titus is just a little bit older than Timothy and therefore would still be thought of as a young man uh, in his maybe late 30s, maybe 40. Uh, And so one of the problems as a preacher or teacher uh, is often trying to deal with people that are older than you, like uh, older brother-sister age group or mother-father, aunt-uncle, or even grandpa-grandma group. Um, They don't take, they don't have as much uh, attention to what you might be telling them uh, as their preacher. Uh, This is one of the reasons it's hard to go back to your home church and be effective because so many of the people there know you as a little kid and can't get past uh, that uh, mindset towards you. Chapter 3. And we're going to take a little bit of time on this one here because I think it is important. Um, It is something that Paul repeated from Romans chapter 13. He wants Titus to do this, verse 1 of chapter 3, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Now, it is imperative that all of us find our place in the structure of society in the structure of government. 
and we need to obey the laws of the land. That's what it's going to come down to here. Unless the law of the land is in direct contradiction to something we've already received from God. Now, that is, that's a nice, easy principle to verbalize, but I am afraid many Christians have a hard time putting it into practice because they don't necessarily like all the laws of the land. For example, and I know this kind of irks a few of you when I do this, the speed limit law is not a matter of morality. God has never said anywhere in his scripture, you need to go as fast as you want to, and don't let anybody tell you otherwise. So the fact of the matter is, folks, if the speed limit has been set by the authorities, we Christians need to follow it. Doesn't matter that you don't like it. Doesn't matter if you think it's a stupid speed limit. It is not in violation of anything that God has said, and therefore we must submit to it. We must, as Paul says in the next thing, be obedient. Uh, we would even have to say this. If uh, the state government of Indiana said that all people had to wear purple socks on Tuesdays, and the state government in Michigan said all people have to wear orange socks on Tuesdays. Those of us that live in Michiana, if we cross the line, would have to switch from one color sock to another. Doesn't matter that we think it's a stupid law. If we think it's a stupid law, we should work to try to get it changed. All that matters from a biblical standpoint is we have been told to submit to the authorities above us unless what they say is in direct contradiction to what Scripture says. And color of socks don't fall into that category. And there's plenty of other things. I try to use innocuous examples so people don't get too mad. Uh, but we as Christians, we preachers, have to teach Christians exactly as Paul is saying to Timothy or to Titus here. Remind them, exhort them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, follow the rules of the land. And then from that, to be ready for every good work. See, instead of being disobedient just because you don't like it, you should be obedient and look for some way that you can help other people out, that you can make a difference in other people's lives. Because you might even have the opportunity then to bear witness to those other people of what good thing Jesus has done for them by dying and rising again, just like he did it for you, just like he did it for me. So we as Christians have got to be the best citizens of our nation, whatever nation we happen to be living in, whatever state we happen to be living in, what city, uh, region we happen to be living in. We've got to be the best people of those regions so that we can also represent Jesus Christ 
to our fellow citizens, our fellow occupants of those regions. Verse number two, to speak evil of no one. So we're not supposed to be talking people down in a nasty fashion. Now, we can criticize as long as we are being fair-handed, fair-minded, and appropriate in our criticism. That's not Paul is not saying you can't criticize people. He's saying you don't just simply badmouth people. We're also, he says, to avoid quarreling and to be gentle. So we shouldn't be trying to get into these fights, these, these um, um, uh, flame wars on the internet, uh, because we don't just simply converse face-to-face nowadays. We, we uh, converse by uh, thumbs and uh, keyboards to people uh, far, far away from us. We shouldn't be getting into fights all the time. Instead, we are to be gentle. Uh, this idea of gentle is the sense of being um, like Jesus. Uh, we are meek. We have our power under control and are showing uh, this idea that we don't have to be the center of everything. Uh, and finally, in that verse, it says, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Uh, one of the things that uh, I think society has been suffering from lately is rudeness. Uh, and some of it's just uh, plain loss of, of uh, customary courtesy. Uh, people don't say please, and thank you, and excuse me, and uh, uh, may I, uh, and yes, ma'am, no ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir, maybe, sir. We have forgotten that uh, we are intended in Scripture to be polite to one another because everybody we meet is made in the image and the likeness of God. And they are valuable to Jesus Christ. He died for them, just like he did for us. And so we are to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. And even those that are perceived as our enemies, Jesus teaches us that we are to love them and pray for them and to do good things for them. Because that is... That is the attitude that Jesus wants us to have toward other people. Uh, so let's make sure that we don't follow the example of the world, that we don't follow the example of a coarsening culture, but instead we follow the directives of preachers and teachers of Scripture, such as the Apostle Paul and Titus.